0: You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers.
1: Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Brooks. Tina Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O. Renz, Robin Hong,
2: Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher,
1: Sherlene
0: Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Brad Thor back on the show with me today. Brad is one of my favorite guests to have uh, because he's one of my favorite authors. And, you know, I, I posted on Facebook a while back that there are... Uh, a short list of books that are that are absolute must-buys as soon as they come out, whether I've read a blurb or not, and uh, Brad Thor's Scott Harvath series is uh, definitely at the top of that list. He's here to talk about his brand new book. It's called Near Dark, and is this book 19 or 20 in the series? Uh, because Because Amazon is a little confused about it.
1: Yeah, no, that Amazon thing has been uh, just a uh, bear to wrestle and get correct. It's 19 in the series, my 20th okay. thriller overall, because I did a spin-off book once called The Athena Project about an all-female Delta Force team. But for Harveth, this is the 19th in and- for those who are listening who haven't read a Brad Thor book before, you do not have to have read a previous book. It's like James Bond movies. You can jump in at any point you want to and I catch you up real quick without boring longtime readers. So, you can start with Near Dark if you want to, the brand new one.
0: Absolutely. And and you know, this really is and I know that, that there's a um uh, that that you like to tell people they can jump in uh, at any time and I actually answered that question for someone on Facebook the other day They, they said well, I want to get started reading uh, Brad Thor where do I start and I said well just kind of read all the blurbs and whichever Story sounds good. You jump in mm-hmm. on that one because you can you can kind of come in anyway and uh, And I promise you'll you'll love the hero and then want to go, you know and kind of join him on all of his journeys, but uh, there's uh, reboot is is the wrong word, but this is a um, Harvath is is going through some changes, and if someone has not read the other books, this is actually an opportune time to get in um with him now and then go back and read that backstory. Um, how do you feel about writing a character this long, um, and and you know finding new stuff for him to get into?
1: Well, you know, that is the that is the challenge when you write a series character is revealing a little bit more about the character every time. And then also sending that character on adventures, because uh, what I sell is entertainment. I sell escape. So sure. I, I want to give you a great white knuckle thrill ride. Hopefully, like no one has ever given you before, uh, show you some plots and plot twists that nobody else has done before. And that is that's what keeps my job challenging. And if it wasn't challenging, I'd get bored pretty fast. So it's hard. And each book gets harder. You would think having written 20 novels, it would get easier, but it doesn't. That's part of the product of me being the son of a Marine and growing up in the Midwest, we were taught never rest on your laurels. You're lucky to have customers that are loyal to you. So what you need to do is exceed their expectations every single time. Be the one guy that your customers, basically my bosses, I don't work for Simon & Schuster. I work for you, Hank. I work for the readers. So I want when, when you all go and leave X amount of stars at Amazon or Goodreads or Barnes & Noble, uh, that's my annual performance review. And I want a five-star performance <laughs> review. So I spend the entire year working to make you happy.
0: Well, Brad, we we've talked before, and I'll put links to the previous conversations we've had in the show notes, where people can go catch up if uh, if they haven't listened to those yet. But um, we've talked in the past about your your time as a a, a television producer, writer, creator, um, and and how that journey it eventually led to uh, to your uh, your uh, novelist career um, that that's happened since then, but. Uh, Do you remember, can you put your finger back on the first uh, book thriller that kind of opened your eyes to the fact that that books could transform you, transport you to another place and and that you could live, you know, entire adventures between the covers of a book? Do you remember the first book or series or author that did that for you?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I I was a voracious reader from a very young age. So I read all the Hardy Boys books. I read all the Black Stallion books. I was really into horses when I was a kid. Go figure, growing up downtown Chicago, how I'd end up uh, uh, loving horses. Uh, But I remember the Count of Monte Cristo is really what I consider probably the most impactful and original cliffhanger page turner for me. And it was later in life that I learned that uh, Alexander Dumas had written that to be serialized in a French newspaper. So it was a marketing gimmick for a French newspaper that you would buy the next installment of the paper because you wanted to get the next chapter of the book. So he had to hold you for that chapter and then give you a cliffhanger, which would make you want to come back for the next one. So that was pretty impactful. uh, But you know, I was reading such great writers growing up. So David Morell, who's just a fabulous, fabulous writer, uh, who I've been fortunate enough to become friends with as an author. But Freddie Forsyth, Tom Clancy, John Le Carre, all those people, because my parents read them. So when my parents would finish a book, I'd grab it. And I'd read whatever they were reading. Uh, the, the Harold Robbins stuff they wouldn't let me get my hands on. That was a little too risque. But the uh, but the other stuff I did get to read, and uh, that came a little bit, you know, when I started getting towards my teen years a little bit more. You know, I wasn't in second grade reading Ludlum, but later, you know, getting getting eighth grade and into high school and stuff, I would devour those. I absolutely loved them. I wasn't a Sherlock Holmes person. Uh, my kids love Holmes. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. But the 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 espionage stuff, uh, the international intrigue, I really grooved towards that. And that's probably had the biggest impact. That's become my favorite genre. That genre wasn't available to me as a grade schooler, just because of what my parents would let me read. But when I got into high school, that really cemented it for me. And Stephen King in his great book on writing said that you should write what you love to read because that's where your passion is, And when I speak to young writers, I always add, and you also have a mini PhD in that genre. If you read extensively in the thriller genre, you know what you like, what you don't like, why certain books by your favorite author really bulge over and maybe why one clunked for you, but the author got it back. You really understand tempo, pacing, page or chapter length and all that kind of stuff. If you read in, in one particular genre and people do that, people love mystery or they love sci-fi or fantasy. Uh, so that's really there. There are very few authors that look at the the book world and say, well, I think I could make a lot of money there. Most of them uh, followed Stephen King' commandment, which is to write what you love to read. Well,
0: and and you can always tell um, uh, a, a rookie author because they're they're always scared of those questions. They're always, you know, asking things like, well, how long should a chapter be? What right. you know, how how do I? you know tease out this scenario and and it really does come down to just trusting um what what your gut says and what you've trained yourself uh to do and, and all that stuff you know and when you complete one book there's nothing like that feeling of completion right. and and, and uh, okay now I know I can do it now let me go back and work on my craft did I do this correctly you know and and all of that just kind of works itself out after a while doesn't it
1: it's so true. I I have always said that when I finished my very first novel, The Lions of Lucerne, I felt the elation that I figured people felt when they had climbed their first mountain or run their first <laughs> marathon. It felt fantastic, Hank, and nothing – and it feels great to finish a book ever since then. I've written 19 since then, and it always feels great. It never feels that great because that was the thing on my honeymoon. My wife asked me, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said writing a novel and getting it published. And she said, fine, when we get home, two hours a day, protected time, make that dream come true. So I did that. And after I finished that first novel, I knew I would never go to my deathbed wondering what if. And I also knew I could do it again and again and again. And one of the things that I used to get asked to do early on in my writing career was somebody would say, oh, I'm thinking about writing a novel. Or I have a friend who's thinking about writing a novel. Would you meet with them for coffee? And being a nice guy, I used to do it. And I I, I, I quickly stopped. Because I realized that, uh, just like you said, how long should a chapter be, all this kind of stuff. 99.9% of the people that say they want to write a novel will never write one. It, it right. really is all about seat the pants to seat of chair. And uh, Jack London said, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. I, I just It was a waste of my time to go with people that were talking about writing books. Come to me after you have written the book and then we can talk. But there's no point in talking beforehand. There is no magical... Formula. You just have to get the book out. You have to get it out, get it on the page, and worry about it later. And I think that that is kind of a mental hurdle that if you can overcome that one, that's probably one of the biggest ones in the process is just getting started. In fact, Lucille Ball once said that if you write a page a day at the end of the year, you've got 365 pages. And it's kind of simple, but Mary Higgins Clark used to get up two hours early every morning before her family and just sit down and write. And there's another big, and I forget the gentleman's name, he's a British author, so prolific. The reason all the post boxes are painted red in Britain is because of this gentleman He worked for the British Post and he wrote, I don't know, like 200 books, it was crazy. But he'd get up every morning, write a little bit. And if he finished a book, he'd start the next one before he went off to work. So it really is about self-discipline. It's more self-discipline than anything else, even more than creativity. I would suggest it's self-discipline.
0: Looking back now, you know, with this is book nineteen, and that's a that's a huge accomplishment. But you know, that's a that's a lot of time uh, that you have spent with Scott Harvath. Uh, you know, I would imagine. That you have friends in your life that have not been with you as long as Scott Harvath has uh, been. Looking back now, is, is there any way that you could have guessed, you know, when you're writing Lions of Lucerne, that that Harvath would be with you as long as he has been?
1: <laughs> it's a great question, and the answer is no. In fact, I was a huge Michael Crichton fan, and what I liked about Crichton and the way I saw my career as an author potentially going was every book would be a new protagonist you know, unless I wrote multiple Jurassic Park style books. Uh, So I had never intended to come back to Harvath. Harvath was a one and done Lions of Lucerne because I wanted the excitement and the challenge uh, and the freedom to create a different protagonist every time. Yet the response to Harvath was so good in my publishing house with the early readers and everything that my editor approached me and said, you, you have to continue. This is going to be a franchise character for you. You have to keep writing Harvath. People love this. You've developed such a great character. You need to keep coming back. And I said, well, I don't want to. I don't want to be tied to a, 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 the same character. And she asked me a great question, my editor. And she said, well, how many series have you enjoyed reading? And I listed a bunch of people, a bunch of authors. And she said, OK, how many of those have you read The Jacket? the storyline or maybe the setting wouldn't have been your first choice if that had been a standalone book where you didn't know the character and I said well probably several of them and she said but you went because you love the character you wanted another ride with that character that character had become a good friend of yours and become part of your life someone you enjoyed spending time with and I said of course she said well that's exactly what Harvath is becoming for people and it's why you need to keep writing him so it was with the encouragement of my editor that Harvath became my series my franchise character if not for that I don't know that there. Ever would have been another Scott Harvath adventure after Lions of concern
0: That's incredible. Um we've talked before, uh, Brad, about the uh, about how you have a tendency to write books. Um you actively kind of avoided trying to tackle uh things that are newsworthy, top of mind for a lot of people, but for some reason uh, when you publish a book, they they tend to line up with world events sometimes, and I could I could rattle off any number of your books that you know. It seems like Brad Thor is is prescient and and can see things coming before they happen. Um, but uh, do you attribute that to anything? Um, uh, you know, and and this is kind of tongue in cheek. I know you you can't plan these things, but you know they do kind of have a way of of things mattering when the book
1: comes out. Well, it's funny because instead of saying I'm psychic, my wife says I'm psycho, which is kind of <laughs> funny uh, because it's, it's oftentimes bad things that, that I've seen that, that come true. Uh, sometimes some good things, sometimes uh, some interesting international events, things like that. It is, uh, I got to tell you, Hank, I'm a I'm a voracious consumer of news. And Stephen King once said that a writer is someone who's trained their mind to misbehave, and that's that's very much the My my situation, although I don't know that I've trained my mind to misbehave, I think it's just wired that way. That I look at things and say, what if, and I try to connect dots. This is one of the reasons that I was asked to participate uh, in the analytic red cell units in Washington D.C. Uh, to try to help predict for the U.S. government what the next terrorist attack might look like, where it might come from, uh, where Americans might be uh, vulnerable at home and abroad. So as the son of a Marine, it was an incredible honor to be asked to serve my country not by picking up a rifle the way my father did, but to use my creativity – So it's just a way that I do these things. And there's there's certain things that I avoid. Like I've never written about bin Laden because I knew eventually he'd be caught or captured, uh, caught or captured or killed, I should say. So there are certain things I don't touch, but there are certain things where there's a reading of the tea leaves and I've got a certain idea that things might happen. And when they do, it's a combination of having had enough information that i think anybody if they saw the world through the lens that i did could have seen this as a potential outcome but there's a certain element of luck in there too so when things do come true uh whether you know the novel's been out a week or a year and then all of a sudden something happens uh, that's great. But the key for me is to keep the novels evergreen. So let's say you want to go back and read one of mine, or you're at a, uh, a vacation rental, and there's a bunch of books on the shelf. And you're like, oh, I've heard of this Brad Thor guy, let me grab this paper back down and read it. It still feels like it could happen tomorrow, right on your doorstep. So that that being evergreen of every single novel standing the test of time is really, really tough. And if I beat the headlines as part of that, that's icing on the cake.
0: What's interesting uh, is there are there are things that happen like that, uh, but then there are things that happen like like 2020. I don't know if you've noticed, Brad, but we're in the middle of a pandemic, a a worldwide occurrence. And I've, huh. I've talked to a lot of uh, <laughs> authors and, you know, what's going to be interesting is to see what kinds of stories come out next year, because we know that, you know, with the, the way the publishing world works um, this book, you know, near dark has probably been off of your desk for about a year. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you go through the editing process and then all of the, the things that happen to bring a book to market. Um, but, This book is what you worked on a year or two ago, and now you're probably working on another book. Um, But how do you feel – and you can answer this personally if you want or if you just want to kind of prognosticate about the industry. But how do you feel that this thing that we're going through is going to maybe change the face of the stories that come out later down the road?
1: Well, I'll give you a two-part answer to that. Number one in my thriller, Blowback. I did a bioterror thing, what I thought was a really clever bioterror thing. I talked about Hannibal crossing the Alps to go invade Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, and he lost a bioweapon. And that bioweapon gets rediscovered in a melting alpine glacier, and now it's going to be set loose on the world. That was blowback. And then code of conduct, I did the intentional release of a uh, of a terrible virus. And the the code of conduct starts out on page one that the president had been rushed to Bethesda Naval Hospital and people were freaking out because if the president could get the virus, that meant no one was safe. And that's how I kicked off code of conduct. So I've dealt with a bioterrorism thing. I've dealt with a virus thing in ways that I thought were very novel, very creative. Uh, As far as COVID is concerned, I think it's probably the worst thing you could do to include covid in a thriller going forward. I think it's an absolutely bad idea and I'll tell you why. Number one, it could burn out or we could get a vaccine tomorrow, all right? It's again, exactly why I did not write about Bin Laden because I knew eventually he'd be captured or killed. It it is so silly to do that in my professional opinion. I wouldn't touch COVID with a 10 foot pole. The second reason on COVID is I'm selling entertainment. I'm selling escape. I wanna give you a break (laughs) from COVID. So I don't I don't want you to be thinking about covid. That's that's it's bombarding you all day long. Pick up a Brad Thor book and escape for a little bit. And I'll actually add a third thing on there, which is, uh, you know, if you're trying to escape from covid and if covid is potentially not going to be there, the third thing for me as an author is I really don't want to read spy international thrillers where people are wearing masks. How the heck are you going to have two spies meet if both of them are wearing masks they have to stand six feet apart? How are you going to have the meeting in a cafe in Paris or Vienna or Brussels? How are you going to do a brush pass if you're supposed to socially distance? It just, to me, I, I don't want to read about that world. I want to read about the, the world as I knew it before COVID because I think very quickly, I mean, think about the Spanish influenza. What happened right after that? The roaring 20s. As soon as we beat COVID, oh my God, Hank, the world is going to party like it's nobody's business. I mean, I can't wait for it. I grew up, you know, seeing and re- seeing things and reading stuff about the 20s. I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna make the 20s pale in comparison with what's going <laughs> to happen next. And I don't think anybody's going to want to remember COVID. In fact, there's a, I've read a couple of articles that talk about the Spanish uh, flu from, you know, the pandemic in 1918, 1919, and how. There are very little personal accounts because people didn't treat each other very well. It was a very rough time, and people wanted to forget it. I don't want to write a book that people want to forget, and I think people are going to want to put COVID as far in the rearview mirrors as they can. So if there's any writers listening to this, and I know there's a lot of them, I would think twice before doing something about COVID, seriously.
0: I think that's uh, great advice. Uh, I don't know if you've also noticed, but it's an election year here in the United States, 2020. I know. You know God, because- you
1: are. That damn paper boy, if it's not in the bushes, it's up on the roof. <laughs> I am missing out on everything.
0: Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy to use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning professional looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors, authors, Find their home on the web. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden Life is a journey. So is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terence learned. See what Terence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves. See why people are saying things like, Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match. If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find What Death Taught Terrence, a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, a life-affirming journey. I found the story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden, on sale now. You know, if, if it's not pandemic news that we're being inundated with, it's political news. Um, there are some writers who, when you read their books, I, I mean, it's just right on their sleeve. You know exactly where they stand on everything. Uh, it, you are a writer who, uh, on social media and stuff, you don't shy away from from your beliefs and, and, and where you stand on, on certain issues or which candidate that you like more uh, than the others um but when when I open one of your thrillers, I'm not inundated with your uh your personal beliefs or your opinion about everything you you have a way of, of painting characters um that that that's just the the least of what I'm thinking about. I, I don't bring that stuff into the book with me. Uh, whereas some other authors you know are are you know just just fine to do that they 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 want you to bring in all of your political beliefs and um you know prejudices and you know for lack of a better word and and they kind of play off of that um do you have any feelings um when you sit down as a writer um do you turn off those things or how do you approach kind of what your real world feelings are about politics and things like that as opposed to breadth or the writer
1: well so thank you. That's a, it's a very nice observation. And I will, I will actually clarify that, uh, with the onset of the pandemic, I have stopped. Uh, you know, I was one of those people that complained to Hollywood, shut up and sing, right? I don't want to know yeah. your politics and all that kind of stuff. Politics is my baseball. Uh, it's, I follow it very closely. I've worked on campaigns and everything, but I've stopped putting my politics on social media with, with the, uh, with the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. I got, very frustrated. I have, you know, a very dear friend of mine is the national security advisor to uh, to the current administration. And I've just been frustrated and it's gotten more divisive. And so I decided, okay, I, it was really hypocritical of me to say, shut up and sing to Hollywood, yet I'm an entertainer also, and I should be allowed to just, you know, promote my politics on social media. I I realized that that was very hypocritical. So I have stopped doing that. You can go back and look at my social media. I'm not doing it anymore. I just don't do it, particularly now. It's so tough. It's so divisive. And it was not only divisive within political parties, but it's been Things have become divisive culturally. And so now we're seeing, you know, uh, there was one of uh, I just read a a headline last week uh, about the two Texas officers that were ambushed and killed. And one of the uh, one of the uh, officers daughters put out a social media post and she used a hashtag that's uh, that that was supportive of police officers and she was absolutely hounded. Uh, I just could not believe that people would hound this poor girl whose father was murdered over her in, in it, it was just terrible. So I saw somebody say right about the time the pandemic started that Twitter in particular was like giving the dumbest person you could find a bullhorn. <laughs> and I thought that was right on the money. And I asked somebody very close to me who's very smart, who does not do social media, why don't you do social media? And he said to me, he said, Brad, he said, particularly on Twitter, he said, it is like the fight or flight mechanism gets gets triggered when you post because you're gonna get challenged. He said, but the fight never ends. There's always somebody else that's criticizing and he said, your cortisol is getting up. He said, it's just not, life's too short, it's not worth it. So I backed off that because I thought, okay, my author work should be separate from me, the citizen. And as the son of a Marine, my parents very much valued um, being stewards of the Republic. The politicians don't own the country, we own the country. And it's a company, and we don't even own it. We're merely managers, you and me, Hank, and everyone listening. We're merely stewards of the Republic, and it's our job to hand it to the next generation freer, more equitable, safer, more prosperous than it was handed to us. I took my role as a citizen very, very seriously. And so it was Brad Thor, a citizen that you were seeing on on, uh, social media. And I've not I've now dialed that back because it's just a really tough time And my role. I can better serve my country and the people who follow me by entertaining them. So to the writing end of things, I've always wanted to write books that everyone could enjoy. I always said it would be a huge mistake to open a restaurant and hang a sign on the front door that said everyone welcome except for these groups. Bing bang boom. That would be silly. You'd be you'd be cutting off your nose despite your face. So I want the books to be accessible to everyone. Are they and I, I write thrillers that involve politics. The politics are in there. So I don't write the politics to take shots at either side. I write the politics to show the difficulties that the men and women on the front lines face because they are often hamstrung, whether it's by management at the CIA, whether it's decisions made in the Pentagon, whether it's congressional, things that happen happen in oversight committees. I try to, I try to honestly reflect that. And I grew up downtown Chicago. I have Democratic friends. I have Republican friends. So I want them all to read and enjoy the books. Um, it's one of the reasons, also, I have incredibly brilliant women that surround me, whether it's my agent, my wife, my editor. Actually, hold on, I've got to start the right way. Whether it's my wife, my daughter, my editor. <laughs> my agent. I got to rank them properly. Uh, you know, and so the female characters in my books are not window dressing. They are meant to be equal, uh, drivers of the plot, uh, e- equal, equally necessary for the plot to, uh, to, for the, for the ends of the book to come to fruition. This stuff is really important to me. So I want to write a book that regardless of what your background is, it, I, I want everybody to enjoy these books. I've always said, that reading is a shared love. It's a shared language that we can all speak to each other. If we love books, it doesn't matter what your bank account looks like, who you voted for, where you grew up, what you look like, where you go to worship, what you do for a living, none of that should matter. And I feel that books are the one place that everybody should feel uh, uh, is accessible to them. I don't want anybody to say, well, I wouldn't read that Brad Thor guy's books because he takes positions that I don't like. There may be characters that take some positions that you don't like, but I try to balance those with other characters that show the other side. Because I believe most people are inherently good. Uh, even the villains in my book believe they're the heroes in their own story. There's a reason they're doing things. The villains may not be good, but it isn't kind of a cardboard cutout Doctor Evil, you know, pinky between the teeth, and the uh, or the twisting of the mustache, if you will.
0: Well, and and that's fun, isn't it? Getting to to look. Uh, to, to take a certain situation look at it from both sides you know which side harvath is going to take um, but what what would someone else do and then what what are the consequences of those decisions or uh that world view and that's that's how you write a great antagonist isn't it
1: I, I think so. In fact, there's somebody who works in my office that Code of Conduct, which we were just talking about, is one of her favorite books, particularly because she loves the villain in that book, Pierre Damien, who is uh, – uh, this is going to sound really heavy. And for all of you listening, this is the book I want you to take to the beach or to the lake, take on vacation. That's the kind of book I write. So when I say what Pierre Damien is, don't let the term, if you're unfamiliar with it, scare you off because it's not – it's it's a spooky kind of cultish clubby, weird globalist kind of a thing, but they're called Neo Malthusians. And they believe there's too many people on the earth and it would be really good if something swept through and wiped them all out. (laughs) And, uh, this guy is very, very interesting. And as I layered that onion, um, this lady that works in my office, she said, hands down, my favorite villain of yours hands down. She loves Pierre Damien and Code of Conduct. And it's because of the way that I layered him and how I went into what his motivations were and why he thought, even though we as the readers see him as the bad guy, he saw himself as the hero of his own story. And uh, so that makes me feel really good when people say, gosh, I found your bad guys compelling. Because one of the worst reviews you could get as an author is for someone, A, to say, I didn't finish your book, or B, and or B, to say that uh, the characters were two-dimensional. They were cardboard. And so oftentimes I'll start with the villain, and I'll really take a good look at the villain. Once I know what the book's going to be about, I want to know what drives the villain, and why do they feel they're correct in doing it? Because it isn't just snidely whiplash, you know, again, twisting the mustache and tying the damsel in distress to the railroad tracks. Nobody believes that. You, You want characters where you can understand them, And this goes back, Hank, to when I was at the University of of Southern California studying creative writing and film and television production. We had a writing class and we watched a movie with Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman, real old movie now called Kramer versus Kramer, about two parents getting divorced and kind of the fight over the child in that. And the teacher asked a very interesting question, which is, okay, there's a hero and there's a villain in this movie, which is which? (laughs) <laughs> and everybody had a different opinion. Who was the hero? Who was the villain? And you know, okay. And and they could argue either Meryl Streep was or Dustin Hoffman was. Um, but there was a little bit of both, uh, in each of them. So I think the more human you can make characters, the more people can relate to them. That makes them more compelling. That makes the read more engaging.
0: Do Do you generally have a a problem? Uh, when you when you begin the planning of a new book, is, is there a a problem that you're kind of wrestling with, uh, or maybe uh, it's an intriguing news article or, uh, you know, or maybe just seeing something in the geopolitical landscape and, and, and wondering, I wonder, you know, if this certain situation went sideways, what would happen? Like, what's that, what's that first kind of kernel of an idea that you start rolling around and, and, and wrestling with in your mind that, that the story comes out of?
1: So that's a great, that's a great question. So like I said earlier, I look at things and say, what if? So that whole Stephen King writer, someone who's trained their mind to misbehave. For me, I look at everything and say, what if? So my third novel, State of the Union, had it was an idea where I said to myself, huh, what if the Cold War really didn't end the way we thought it did? What if the Soviets had just rolled over and played dead? What if it was a long con, if you will, a long game? Where they said we can't beat the us right now what happens if we just pretend to give up and they project that they're going to get all this international aid and they'll pretend to decommission or decommission x amount of nukes and all this kind of stuff it was really compelling i thought okay that'd be a cool idea for a thriller uh the idea for my novel takedown i was in new york i had a nugget of an idea i was going to be meeting with my editor to uh pitch a new novel and my wife and i checked into the hotel and went downstairs to the hotel bar to have a drink and I was sitting there and I said, you know, Manhattan's an island. What if all the bridges and tunnels got taken out? Why might somebody want to do that? And that what if gave birth to uh, gave birth to blowback. So a lot of my ideas happen that way. And two, two books ago, Spy Master, I had seen we've been in Afghanistan a super long time. We've been in uh, Iraq a su- uh, super long time, and we, we're a war-weary nation. We've been at war a long, long time, and there was a lot going on with NATO, with the current administration, and were NATO members, uh, you know, honoring their obligation to put two percent of their GDP into their own militaries, and many weren't. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting because we're signers to the NATO charter. And Article 5 says an attack on one is an attack on all. Well, we know Putin took over the Crimean Peninsula, and he's got his sights set on reconstituting kind of the old Russia. So there are three NATO member states you don't hear a lot about. They're very small. They're on the Baltic, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Well, if Russia moved against one of those, would a war-weary American public be willing to send its sons and daughters to capture that back from Russia? particularly when most Americans can't find those places uh, on a map. If you gave them a map without the country's name, would they be willing to go into one of these places? Maybe some of them hadn't even heard of before. And I thought, ooh, boy, that's a difficult thing. Okay, now take President Trump and his current administration out of it. What if you did have a president who was pro-NATO or reluctant with NATO, who saw that this could be a big problem and knew that there wouldn't be public support? What would you be willing to do to prevent that war, because Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, has only been triggered once. And the United States triggered it after 9-11. So what if Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia said, oh, my gosh, Russia's attacking us, would we be willing to go? And as I dug into that, I found out that the Rand Corporation did a war game scenario where they ran the simulation. Hundreds of times, probably a thousand times with very high end U.S. generals, some playing the role of Russian generals, some playing U.S. generals, and then they would mix them up and switch sides with them. Every single time Russia got away with it. And I thought, oh, this would be a perfect thriller. How? What might the United States do if it got a little bit of intel that Russia was about to go? What would the United States be willing to allow Scott Harvath, my protagonist, to do to prevent that article five being triggered, Russia being able to grab one of these NATO states, because if Russia did grab one of these states and we did nothing, it's the end of NATO. So how do you preserve NATO and not go to war? And so that was kind of my thriller. So HARMAth got set loose in this part of the world that I'd never set a novel in before. And the more I read about it, the more I realized, oh, the Russians have their eyes set on this little island off the coast of Sweden because if they could put missiles there, you don't get into the Baltic Sea with American ships. You can't fly planes there because the Russians air defense systems will take you out. And the most fascinating piece of information I got Was that trying to move American military equipment out of Germany or Poland up into the Baltic states, the railroad gauge changes and we have to take everything off of train cars and put them on new train cars. And every one of those switching depots is already is already mapped out by the Russians for sabotage. So there's all of these roadblocks on why it should not work for the United States. So as a thriller author to say, how do we make it work? How do we actually get away with this before Russia can get was just too much fun. So it was really neat to kind of refresh like the Cold War era thriller and set it in a modern day setting with real life stakes. I
0: love that so much. Brad, as you're talking about things that you found out as you started digging into the scenario, um, with Near Dark, book nineteen in the Scott Harvath series, um, has your has your research uh, or your ability to research changed over these nineteen books? I, I can only imagine that it has because I would imagine you could pick up, pick up the phone and, being Brad Thor, you, you could probably find out things that might be a little more difficult for me. Um, what? How has your research changed? And uh, is it still? as much fun to dig into things you don't know about and, and start peeling the layers back?
1: Yeah, it's it, the research has not changed. It's still very much the way it was at the beginning, which is me building relationships. So I, I want to take readers right up to the edge of the real world and let them peer over the hedge. This is the real stuff that the SEAL teams face or Delta Force or people at the CIA, NSA, DIA, FBI – Uh, inside the White House. I really wanna show you the way these things operate. But at the same time, my job is to keep those pages flipping by really fast. Because again, I wanna give you an escape. I wanna entertain you. I want you to have a fun read. You can read over the weekend. In some cases, people read the books without even moving one sitting, which is a huge compliment. Uh, So my goal is to get the best information I can get and then make it as entertaining as possible. Now, I'll have, you know... people at the CIA say, okay, well, you would do this, 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 and this. And I'm like, okay. And I take all the notes and everything. And then they read the book and they're like, Thor, we told you there'd be eight meetings before your hero can get from here to there. I said, yeah, but nobody's going to sit through eight (laughs) cutouts. You know, nobody's going to take 12 taxi cab rides, three buses, two, I get it. I'm not writing a training manual to be used at the farm for new CIA uh, uh, recruits. So that's not what this is. I'm, I'm writing fiction. So part of writing fiction uh, I I could paraphrase but I'm not going to I'm going to give you the Elmore Leonard quote that he always gave young writers which is leave out the parts that people skip right I'm a big Clancy fan I loved Clancy growing up but my dad swore this was my dad's joke that Clancy got paid by the word because you'd have (laughs) these long passages of how a guidance system on a on a certain type of missile works I don't care all I want to know is there's two guys on the ground that have a laser designated, a designator and they can paint a target and, you know, unless she, nobody else can see this laser except for the missile. The missile comes in and the missile hits the target based on where these guys were painting. I don't need to know that the gyroscope rotates this way, blah, 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 blah inside the, I don't care. That was the stuff that I always skipped in the Clancy novels. I just, I, I, I'm not that, I, I don't need that much technology. So in my own novels, I don't put a lot of that stuff in, like I'll describe what a weapon looks like. I'll give you the full name of the weapon. And what's kind of neat is my favorite class of fan mail that I get is when I hear from men and women in the SEAL teams, uh, the FBI, CIA, so on and so forth that say, wow, you nailed it. That's the gear we carry or that's tactically some of the stuff that we've been doing currently or blah, blah, blah. Those are the same situations, problems we had in this area of the world, same kind of craziness back at the office that was going on. That to me is a is a real compliment. So that's that. That's the balance I have to strike as a thriller writer is, again, I'm not a teacher. These are not instructional manuals. These are thrillers. So you have to decide what parts to leave out, what parts to keep in. And that sometimes can be really, really hard because there's a lot of fun stuff I want to include. But if it slows down the pacing, you have to be willing to to yank it out and, and leave it, leave it aside.
0: Brad, um, I, in in my imagination, a couple of years ago, you woke up one morning, just pissed off at Scott Harvath, and just decided to make his life a living hell. Um, and the last couple of books have <laughs> kind of borne that out. Um, with with Near Dark, we see a Harvath that is uh, he's he's at the end of his rope. You know, um, he's in in worse shape than we've ever seen him before you know there's a a discussion that that I like to have with people that that write long series um like Scott Harvath uh, you know you when we pick up a book I'm not worried that you're going to kill Scott Harvath because I'm assuming that there's going to be a book 20 in the series um so you as a writer are given a unique challenge that you have to set the stakes really high Um, but also have him show up for book 20. Um, so as a writer, uh, what, what do you get to do to Scott to keep those stakes high, to keep me on the edge of my seat, wondering what's going to happen, but preserve him that that's a unique situation to be in.
1: Yeah and it's it's tough and it's interesting because uh so the book we were just talking about with all the NATO stuff and Russia moving on a Baltic potentially uh, that that was two books ago Spymaster and I wrote Spymaster and I turned it in to my agent or, uh, to to my agent and my editor and my editor got back to me and said yeah I want to do something else with the ending I said okay what do you want to do and she said I I don't know but she's great at telling me we need something else here and I will say, what is it I don't know You figure it out. You're the writer. I'm I'm the editor. You're the writer. You figure it out. So I ended ended Spymaster with a cliffhanger. And what was really tough was then I had to start writing the next book, Backlash. So I had to address how to – what about that cliffhanger? What does that mean? And there were, I had, it looked like that Russell Crowe movie, A Beautiful Mind. I had all these things taped to my wall. I looked like I was, uh, I was having a nervous breakdown, a mental break because I had all these charts and, and post-it notes and all this kind of stuff in my office, trying to figure out what direction made the most sense. And I said, okay, what direction will be the hardest for me as a writer? What bears the most risk? What will be the biggest risk I can take with my readers uh, and professional risk that I could take as an author and what scares me the most. And that was the direction I went because I realized that the harder I pushed myself, the more rewarding the final product was gonna be, again, for the readers who are the people I work for. And so that took me to Backlash. And then from Backlash, um, what's really interesting is uh, this whole thing about the bonus chapter uh, that I did for Barnes & Noble where Backlash was complete, Barnes & Noble said, hey, will you do a bonus chapter for us so we could have a, a special edition? And so it's kind of like the Marvel World, uh, the movie, the Marvel uh, series, if you do anything, even if it's after the credits and that, that scene pops up and you were smart enough to sit in the theater knowing it's a Marvel movie and you should wait for that final scene, that final scene, that additional chapter I wrote becomes part of the Harvath universe. So when I did that for Backlash, I didn't think ahead. I didn't realize I was gonna to have to address that in Near Dark. So uh, it was really tough for me because I basically said, oh my God, I talked to my publicist and I said, David, I, I, Backlash is complete. Now I gotta do this bonus chapter. And he goes, well, it's a Brad Thorne novel. Every chapter that needed to be in Backlash last summer was in there. Uh, there is no bonus to that. He said, it's gotta be something brand new. And I was like, oh, you know what? You're probably right. Now I came up with this idea of somebody putting out, you know, you fade to black, you come back up from black, and somebody is putting out a hundred million dollar bounty on Scott Harvath. Okay, great. My editor loved it; said it was the best chapter she had ever read. The people Parts Barnes Noble loved it. Um, uh, so I put that out there. But then that had to become the starting point, Hank, for Near Dark, and it's the prologue in Near Dark. It's that same chapter that sets that up. But what really became difficult for me as a writer is. I know who Harvath is because I know who he's based on. So I picked up the phone and called the handful of people that Harvath's based on and said, if you found out somebody put a $100 million contract out on you, what would you do? And the first spook I talked to said, the only way to kill a contract is to kill the person who put the contract out on you. So you're going to have to figure that out. And I said, well, how did the if somebody puts a $100 million bounty on you, how do they find you? And he said, they don't. He said, if I wanna disappear, I disappear. And he said, here's potential places I would hide out. Here's how I would reverse engineer it. So that was really tough for me because it wasn't like the assassins would pour in and Harveth could grab one and interrogate him. That just seemed too easy. Again, I wanted to set that bar high for myself. So that was the big challenge with, with doing this next one. And so you you do find Harvath down. And I mean, Backlash was really difficult for Harvath because last summer's book, because of how I ended Spymaster and how I decided that cliffhanger would be resolved in Backlash. So this year with Near Dark, you find him at at the lowest point he's ever been in in any of my novels. So that's really tough in that it it reveals something about Harvath uh, even more. I think it makes him more human, more compelling, more relatable for readers. But now the challenge for me is where do I go next uh, for next summer's book? And I can't wait to you and I do this interview next year because I'll have the book under my belt, it'll be complete and I'll feel great. Like, hey, Hank, remember I couldn't tell you where we were gonna go? It's (laughs) It's really tough. But the same person, brilliant woman who works in my office who loves the villain from Code of Conduct has likened what I do to having an amusement park. And she said, you know, you get so obsessed, Brad, with topping yourself every year, but you've got to understand that that's not necessarily how every reader looks at your books. Readers will have favorites, but they don't necessarily say, OK, well, I like this one because he topped it. I like this one for whatever reason. She said your business is almost like you have an amusement park. And what people want is they want to come back every year. They want to know that they're going to get an awesome ride and they get to take the ride with Scott Harvat." So everybody around me believes that I put more pressure on myself than is necessary. But again, it goes back to my Midwestern upbringing, not taking the readers for granted and wanting to top myself every year. Uh, But this idea that what I need to do is build a great ride, give people a great thrill. That's what they're coming to me for uh, is something that I need to embrace a little bit closer. But I just drive myself very, very hard. And it's so important to me that readers know when – listen, you and I can go – both go out and make an extra 25 bucks, right, to buy a new book, whatever it is you spend on a hardcover or an e-book or an audio book. You can go out and make more money to replace what you spent. The one thing you cannot make more of is your time, and that's what is the most valuable to me as an author. So when you give me your time to read or listen to one of my books – I feel it's incumbent upon me to deliver that much, if not more value back to you. And that's what I'm all that's where I set the bar for myself. And that's why I inch it up every year is because it forces me to work on my craft, get better. And I know for sure. Listen, I'm never going to phone it in. I am going to be the one guy that you can come to year after year after year when I have a new book out. And, you know, Thor is never going to let me down. Because I quit before I'd phone it in. It's just not within my DNA to phone it in. I can't. It's not fair. And and I don't want the criticism too. That's one thing that you, know, you, you never want to hear a viewer say, oh, you really dropped the ball. That's why this stuff – like last year, the book won several awards and best book of the year and all this kind of stuff and people going, I don't know how he's going to top himself. And then now I'm getting reviews for Near Dark, and already hearing from readers now that the book has been out like what are we 24 hours now? Going, oh my God, I read it in one sitting, and it's even better than last year. So now the pressure's on even more. You know, how do I make next summer's book even better? I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna have no teeth and no hair. I'm gonna pull them all everything out.
0: That's amazing, and and we we all know um, that. You know, from the writer's perspective, whereas the the readers may not feel like that you're topping each one like you do. But but you know that you can't um, you can't do the same things that you did last time. You've got to keep recreating your storytelling uh, to keep people like me with with, you know, the new Thor book at the top of the must buy list, because I know, um, you know, unlike some other authors who I have loved throughout their career. But you can, you can see when uh, when they've sold so many books, and you, you get a new one, and you're like, man, uh, I, I don't like to say that they phoned this one in, but it kind of feels that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know you never get that feeling from a Brad Thor book, and uh, I think that's what people love Thank about you. you and your work.
1: But they, I try. I mean it's like, it's, it's like saying they're handcrafted. I mean it's kind of a stupid thing, <laughs> but it is that kind of – it's not an assembly line. There's not yeah. a formula. You know, there's no formula to my books, and and I really, I, you know, when people leave comments on Goodreads or Amazon or whatever, you know, I I read that stuff. That's free feedback for me. That's market research. You know, I know a lot of authors. I never look. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to hear what your boss thinks of your work product? Of course you should read those things. I mean, yeah, I mean, you gotta let the there's there's some people like I'll like I'll get a bad review for whatever reason. I'll like some guy said for a former military guy who also was an arms dealer. I'm like, what? I wasn't in the military and I was never an arms <laughs> dealer. You got me confused with somebody else, buddy. Uh, and some of these people you can click and see all they do is come on to unload and, and just vent their spleens, right? They're just basically unhappy people. And it, it is the Abraham Lincoln. You can make some of the people happy some of the time, but you can't make all the people happy all the time. But I do try, I do try. And I think it's a, it's a testament to Uh, Having readers come back and reviewers like you uh, being so kind to say that I'm on your must-buy list and that I should be on other people's must-buy list, I have to earn that every single year when people say what's your favorite book brad that you've written i say it's the one i'm working on now because it's the one i'm most excited about it's the one i'm most passionate about because i've worked so hard to come up with a story to try and be better than last year to deliver for my bosses that's the one i'm most excited about so that for me is always my goal again because i want to be i want to be The one you know you can always, always count on. Thor's going to find another way to, I can't, you know, people plan their vacations around my books. How about that for uh, feeling a responsibility? Somebody says, okay, I look at when your book's coming out and then I plan my vacation so I can read it on vacation. Holy crap, you want to ruin somebody's vacation? They planned it around your book? What kind of jerk doesn't want to make sure it's the best vacation ever?
0: Well, we know that that midsummer there's going to be a new Brad Thor book, and usually there's uh, a bit of a book tour that comes after that. Well, 2020 has has, has kind of changed those things up. What are you doing for book promotion this year, besides you know uh, podcast and 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 stuff like that? But you, normally you're out hitting the road. What's it like this summer?
1: Well, this summer is different. So uh, Monday night, uh, Monday evening before the book officially came out, we did a uh, virtual event at uh, Poison Pen uh, in Scottsdale. Barbara Peters, who's absolutely just fantastic, the owner there. I love Barbara. So smart. She's had huge success. I mean, she had a Diana Gabaldon uh, thing, and they sold like a thousand books. I mean, these virtual book events, Hank, are going through the roof. And when you think about it, it makes sense. I can get hundreds of people to show up at a Brad Thorpe book signing. But if I do – those are people that are willing to get in their cars, drive, sit through an hour kind of interview with me and a, and a host. And then I take questions and then another – Several hours, maybe before you can even get up to get your book signed to get a photo. Now, though, you can do it from home. And people that might not have wanted to get into their cars or said, "Ah, you know what, I've heard about this Brad Thor guy, but I've never gone to one of his signings. You know what, I'll click on this link and watch. Um, So this so far, and I could do a bunch in one day, which is what I did yesterday when the book pubbed. So our hope is, is that we're going to actually reach even more people, that this will actually be a benefit. And with, with all of kind of the, the slowing and rolling back of phases because of the, the spikes in COVID and stuff, uh, we found a lot of people are sick of the news. They've watched pretty much everything they're going to watch on TV and Netflix. And there is this wonderful new tidal wave of readers coming back in saying, I just want to escape. Oh, I heard the store guy is pretty darn good when it comes to escapes. I'm going to give him a try. So these virtual events are something new for us, but they allow us to potentially reach more people. So it's early in the game. Like I said, I just started two nights ago on Monday night. So it's, it's, it's something I'm not uh, – I don't have all the feedback yet, although what we've gotten so far, it's been awesome. It's really been awesome. It's actually outpacing what we thought it would do. So it may turn out that this is just a great thing to incorporate along with – because I just I, – there's no substitute for seeing people in person. Sure, um, sure. And being able to shake hands and hug your fans and get photos with everybody. I'm looking forward to that part coming back. But the way we're doing it right now, knock on wood, it continues to, to work as well as it's going because it's exceeding all expectations. It's fantastic.
0: Well, what's interesting is we've heard stories of businesses that, uh, you know, have have gone to people working from home and virtual offices and people realizing that, you know, maybe we should have been doing some of this all along because it's. It's actually more efficient and uh, I'll I'll be interested to see, you know, a year or two down the road um, when when all this COVID stuff is over and life begins to get back to normal. um, How much of the things that we've done that that stick with us? Because, you know, we realize, hey, that that's that's maybe a good thing that we can incorporate.
1: Well, I'll tell you, it's I can be in a lot more places in one day. Uh, you know, because it used to be you do an event at night, I'd get up at oh dark thirty, be on the first thing smoking in the morning to get to another town, to do morning T V or drive time radio, and then have an event that night and You know, you get it it really is a grind. Uh, It's a good grind. I like it. But I can only go to one event a day versus now I can do multiple events a day. And the nice thing is, uh, and I've got them all up at Bradthor.com for anybody who's interested in seeing one of the events or a couple of the events. What we what we're doing is supporting all these different venues. Right. So you can choose. You can look at all the events and say, oh, yeah, you know what? I like that store or that's a library in my town. And I'm going to I'm going to do that one. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna support that one. I'm gonna sign up to watch that event, and that's that's kind of neat. So we like that. We're able to reach more people, uh, support more bookstores than we would have normally, which is great because, you know, they're hurting too because people are not walking in the doors and just browsing, right? That's a big part of uh, everyday life is going in your bookstore and trying to find a new book and all that kind of stuff. So I like that doing things virtually. I'm able to help more bookstores and libraries. So that's kind of a neat thing.
0: The new book, Near Dark, the 19th Scott, Scott Harvath series uh, book is out, available everywhere now. Uh, in the show notes of this episode, you'll find links where you can buy the Kindle edition or order a hardback or my favorite way to consume books now and especially Brad Thor books are audiobooks, And we put a link there as well. Um, grab it today Head out on your vacation. Take Brad Thor with you. Brad, as always, this has been so much fun catching up and talking about the new book and all the great stuff that we did. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show.
1: Hank, my pleasure. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep reading.
0: Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves' The Jason Crane Series.
2: He led Jason to a small bistro. The door set tiny bells to chime as they entered. The place shivered with smells. Coffee, hot chocolate, and croissants. This, he said, extending his arm towards a woman in an apron, is Jennifer. She makes the best scones and is tragically spoken for. He kissed the woman's hand. She was plump in her fifties. She had left one curler to dangle at the back of her head this morning. If it's a tragedy to you, this is the first I've heard of it. She swatted at him with a menu. Why didn't you speak up twenty years ago, lady killer? Jason sat. Jennifer put a glass of water in front of him. And who is this fine gentleman? This, said Hedwick, joining, is my son's great-grandfather's great-great-nephew. That's a lot of greats. Any great-great-great-whatever of Hedwick is great by me. She giggled at her own wit. I'll be back for your orders. Hedwig swatted her rear end with a menu as she left. He made small talk about the bistro, the specials, what was good, the Benedict, or not so, the hanger steak. When their orders came, coffee for both, eggs for Jason, a scone for himself, he got down to business. I met your grandmother about, oh, a year ago. Valerie and I have a mutual interest in old families, particularly old families related to the legend for obvious reasons— Valerie's lived in Terrytown for years, though her family's up near Boston. Now, don't worry. I don't believe all that nonsense about a headless horseman. Valerie's the superstitious one. But the Van Brunts are definitely the family in Irving's story. Hermanus Van Brunt and his wife Agatha were farmers in the village back in 1780 or so. This was during the Revolution. Hermanus grabbed title to lands left by a Tory family who'd been tarred and feathered and shipped back to Britain... Do you know your history? Sure. Tory. Loyal to the king. Benjamin Franklin broke with his own son who was a Tory. Smart boy. Traitors to the cause. And that was serious business. The British marched straight through here during the war, chased George Washington off Manhattan and out to New Jersey. And after they were kicked out again, a lot of Tories were kicked out with them. Anyway, the Van Brunts took over some farmland north of Terrytown. They had a son, Abraham, and, of course, their son Abraham married a wealthy heiress. Katrina van Tassel. Yes, all that is true. It's public record, just like the legend says. My mother left behind quite a few documents written by Abraham van Brunt, Brahm, in Dutch, mostly. He was powerful around here. With Katrina's money, he became the biggest stone merchant in the state. He died in 1850. After him, it's Dylan Van Brunt, his son, Joseph, the grandson, then Cornelius, then... Sorry, genealogy is... not my thing. No? Why was Eliza doing research on the Van Brunts? She wasn't. She was looking into the cranes. That's what made us such fast friends. I don't get it. We do go back a ways, your family and mine. More coffee? Jennifer appeared at Jason's elbow. Hedwick nodded, and she poured. "'Still not getting it,' said Jason. "'But he did.' Hedwick turned to the waitress, and Jason knew what he would say. "'My lady, may I present—' "'He raised his coffee cup, proclaiming—' "'The last descendant of Ichabod Crane!'